The Trouble with Us Children is Dr. Joel Hunter's series. Dr. Hunter says that there are childish tendencies in almost all of us. He will deal with how they've been passed down from generation to generation. In this first message of this two-part series, Dr. Hunter will discuss competition, where we assume somebody has to lose before we can win. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, from the New American Standard, is Dr. Hunter's text, and it reads as follows. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived, and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And now, let's join for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's message, Competition, as he begins his series, The Trouble with Us Children. You may be seated, and as you're sitting down, if you have your scriptures with you, you may turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, and we will come to that place in the thorns and the thistles land that Adam and Eve have staked out for us. And we will see their lives, as, uh, as Uncle Remus used to say, by and by, uh, the boys came. And let's take a look at what happens with the boys. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I've begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now because those, are two, uh, those phrases are so close together, there are several Bible commentators that believe that uh, Cain and Abel were twins. Interesting thought, but it really doesn't make any difference for our purposes because there's competition among brothers no matter what the age. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. I want to talk about competition. Now, it's not tough to talk about competition in this, na in this nation. We're probably the most competitive nation uh, in the world. Uh, we certainly uh, prize our competitors highly. Athletes are, are uh, paid more highly uh, probably than anybody in the land except maybe for rock stars. Um, we are a nation that loves sports and we love competition. And I want to talk to you about the biblical view of competition today. That is, uh, just to broach the question of why would God allow competition? Why did God 
make a world that in this land of thorns and thistles, competition became so natural, so normal. What is there in competition that allows God to test our hearts? Because that's exactly what competition is. It's a test of our hearts. Some people are brought to their very worst by competition. Some brought to their very best by competition. What's the difference? Some people, when they make an offering, make an effort, are making it out of a good heart at improvement. Some to take another person down. What's the difference? And when that competition comes, when that challenge comes, when there's loss, and by that loss, God scrapes off the surface of the offering, what is revealed in our hearts? You see, that's what this scripture is about. Let me read this again with you a little bit more slowly this time. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now that's no surprise. Brothers are different. Siblings are different. You can have a dozen kids, 20 kids, they'll all be completely different. And that's good. God makes us different so that we can complement one another. So that we can make up for one another's weaknesses. You read 1 Corinthians 12. It's by the design of God that we're different. That's good. But again, in this land of thorns and thistles, it becomes bad sometimes, depending on the heart. Read on with me. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought. Now, this is very normal, isn't it? You get any kid in any room with other kids, and what the one kid does, the other kid will do. And he'll either return it or he'll try to top it. Now, this is not uh, just indicative of the behavior of children. Adults are very much like this. Listen to any conversation between an adult. An adult will, one adult will tell another story, uh, another a story, and, and the other adult will say, Oh, that's nothing. Listen to this. And so there's this, there's this kind of a natural thing of, of, of you know, I'll, I'll see that and raise you a little bit. You know, kind of the anti-up type thing. I'm telling a lot about my background here. Um, so Cain made an offering, and Abel on his part brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Why not? Did it have to do with the difference in the offerings? No. Scripture is clear. If you just take a moment to examine this, God doesn't look at the offering. He looks at the heart. Look at the rest of Scripture. You see, Scripture always tells us God doesn't see as other people see. God looks to the heart. And look at the rest of Scripture, and Scripture tells us that there was something in Abel's heart that, that was accepted that day. In Hebrews 11, 4, it says, By faith, Abel made his offering. There, there was something in his heart. There was a faith. There was a quality of his life that made that offering acceptable. And by the same token, it doesn't take 
very deep reading to see that as soon as God has no regard for the offering, what comes out of Cain? There's anger, and there's disappointment, and there's vengeance, you see. And so God looked at the man, not at the offering. He looked at the heart. And that's why the Bible's arranged as it is. And it says, Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he has no regard. That's why the people are listed first. Because the offerings are made acceptable by the people. Not the people by the offerings. And so I have a question for us all. When you make an offering to the Lord, when you give of yourself, why are you giving? What's in your heart? Do you give because you want to be accepted? Do you give because you want approval? Do you give because you want higher rank? Do you give because you want to win? Or do you give because you love? You see, that's the story of Cain and Abel, and that's the difference between them. And competition can cause us to lose that perspective, what's in the heart. Competition is only good for bringing out what's in the heart. And, and we slide into that other phrase, phrase, uh, phase. There's, there's many of us who begin with a loving heart. But as our offering goes, we have we attach certain expectations to those offerings. And we're angry if those expectations don't get met. And we, we offer these exorbitant uh, uh, offerings so that we will get something from God or from whoever is providing for us. Those of you who love Shakespeare, as I do, will... Uh, before this sermon uh, closed, would have, if I hadn't mentioned it, would probably think of King Lear. Remember King Lear in the first uh, scene, his, uh, uh, his decision is to divide his kingdom among his three daughters so that he can um, tiptoe into old age uh, unencumbered by responsibility. And he can live off of his kingdom uh, in uh, possession of his daughters. Well, his first two daughters come in and they make an offering of this unbridled, unbounded flattery so that they can get more of his kingdom. Goneril and Reagan are their names. And they come in and they tell, how, they tell King Lear how great a man he is and how much they love him and so on and so forth. Well, the third daughter, Cordelia, will not make such a show, such a hollow offering of flattery. Because she has more integrity than that. She says aside, my love's much richer than my tongue. So she will not offer this flattery to her father. And her father, King Lear, who does not see as God sees, takes that surface offering. And he's so frustrated with Cordelia, he practically disowns her. And he gives his kingdom to his other two daughters. And the play is about the development of seeing what's in the heart of those daughters because once they get the inheritance, they are cruel and abusive to their father until he finally says, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. You see, now he can see into their hearts. Why did they do that? Why did they make that offering? Why do we make our offerings to the world and to God? 
because they wanted certain results. Also in that play, it says this, Love is not love when its regard stands aloof from the entire point. Most of the time, when we think we're giving to God, we have a, we, the, the point isn't, isn't giving, we're trying to get something. And God has no regard for that kind of offering. As a matter of, a matter of fact, it shows our shallowness. Let me give you a couple of instances in Scripture. First Samuel. I don't have this in your sermon outline, but if you turn with, with me to this, you could see an example of this. This is Saul. You remember what Saul started off with? Saul started out with so many natural abilities. I mean, absolutely. He was handsome. He was strong. He was a good warrior. He was intelligent. Do you remember? At the end of his life, he just bordered on insanity, kind of came in and went out with his insanity. What was the difference? There was a turning point in his life where the Lord took away from him his kingship, the ongoingness of his kingdom. And we can read in 1 Samuel 13 that turning point. You know what it was? 1 Samuel 13, he made an offering for a result which showed his heart. And God didn't like what he saw in his heart, and so he took the kingdom away from him. He, would, he had been instructed by Samuel, the old wise priest, to wait until he got there. Wait seven days, I'll get there, we'll make an offering to the Lord together. But Saul started looking at all the circumstances around him. His men were deserting, the Philistines were starting to assemble against him, and he got scared. And he said, you know what, I've got to go to the Lord, so he'll give me victory. So he'll let me win. And that's why he went to the Lord. Read this with me if you're here. I'll start with verse 8. Now just skip around. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come. And the people were scattering. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came about as soon as he finished his offering, the burnt offering, that behold, Samuel came. Don't you hate that when that happens? You know, you know you're not supposed to do something. You say, well, this is the only way I'm going to get it done. You do it, and then it comes together some other route. And you know, ugh, I just hate that when it happens. Well, anyhow. And he offered the burnt offering, and Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, because I saw that the people... Now watch, he's starting to rationalize and excuse and blame. Look, watch this. Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling, therefore, I said, I have not asked favor of the Lord. And so I forced myself. I love this. Didn't want to. Just thought it was best. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. There's that word. It's a heart thing. After his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
You see, there's this offering that can come because, oh God, if I do the right things, then you'll give me victory, then you'll give me this, then you'll give... See? And when God just scrapes that off, He just sees a wanton little baby inside. There's another one. Turn to the 15th chapter of Luke. And this is about the prodigal son. Most of us stop the story of the prodigal son way too far in advance. Right when the prodigal son gets home and they party down. There's a whole other story to this. This isn't totally about the prodigal son. This is about the older brother also, who was, like many Christians I know, very competitive in his goodness. Competitive in a way that made him hard. Competitive in a way that made him uh, uh, not somebody you wanted to take fishing with you. Competitive in a way that, you, that you'd never ask him over to watch a movie with, and have popcorn. Now, there's a, there's a whole realm of Christianity, of people, who are trying so hard to be good that they get the hardness instead of the goodness. And this is one of those folks, and this was Cain's problem. You see, Cain was the one who offered the offering first. He was a, I think Cain was a good boy. But I think he was a good boy with a hard heart and a manipulative heart. That's what God exposed. It wasn't that Cain wasn't doing the good stuff. He did the good stuff, but he did it for the wrong reason. And I see the same thing in our lives. I have this problem. I want to be good, but many times I want to be good for the wrong reason. And so I've got to figure out when to say something that will help somebody in their walk and when to just shut up and quit being so judgmental. I've got to learn that myself. But basically what I've got to do is I've got to learn how to have a tender heart toward God. Because the other kind shuts you out. The goodness for the wrong reason shuts you out from the fellowship of God. Look at this. Verse 25. Now, the older son, this is after the party starts going. We usually quit before this. Now, the older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, he didn't like that right off. This guy doesn't like music and dancing. I almost guarantee it. And he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what, what these things might be. And he said to him, Well, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he was received back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, I love this, Look, for so Many years I have been serving you. I love this. After all I've done for you, for so many years, I mean this self-righteous, look at all I've done and this is the thanks I get. I can't believe this stuff. Listen to this. And I have never neglected a command of yours. I love how he counts. You know, he's been keeping a tab. Inside his toga, you know? He got a little thing inside his robe. Never neglected a command. He's keeping track. He's counting it up. He expects a good result from this. And I have never neglected 
a command of yours. And yet, you've never given me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. I'm just a little curious to see how many friends this guy really has. But when this son of yours, wouldn't even call him his brother. Notice that? He's not his brother. When this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots. He's trashing his brother now. Who has devoured your wealth with harlots. You killed a fatted calf for him. You see the heart? Isn't it interesting that this scene closes with the prodigal son on the inside and the older brother on the outside? You know, some have looked at that and said, postulated, Rudyard Kipling postulated that it wasn't because of the father but because of the older brother that the prodigal son really left in the first place. (laughs) Think about that. He wrote a poem one time. And, and, and he has the prodigal son kind of explaining why he's doing this. And, and it says, I've never been very refined, you see. And it weighs on my brother's mind, you see. But there's no reproach among swine, you see, for being a bit of a swine. So, I'll take my wallet and staff to eat the bread that's three parts chaff to wheat. But there's a laugh in it which was more than when we dined. There's a point, Christian, that you've got to look in your spirit and see what happens in competition to your heart. See what it reveals. Does the competition and testing of this world open up the anger and the disappointment and the self-righteousness of your life? Or does it make you tender as to how much you were offering just because you loved and you enjoyed being in the game? Please hear me. I am not saying let's erase all competition because it's bad. Quite the opposite. I think it's a valid test of our heart. I think God uses it to test us and to help us see who we really are. I'm not... Uh, saying let's take all the, the competitive things out of the children's stores and let's all play the ungame together. Oh, gosh. I, I mean, I, I'm a competitive guy. I grew up in this country and I, I just, I'm just naturally competitive. And playing the ungame to me is like celebrating with tapioca. You know, it's, like, it's kind of like kissing your sister. You know, it's, it's nice, but it's, you know. I like winners and losers, you know. I like to know where I am. And if it was good enough for Jesus, remember, remember Jesus, the first thing he did when after the high point of the, of the, of the inauguration of his ministry, he goes down and he's, 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 he's uh, being baptized and the spirit comes down and the voice comes down out of heaven and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And he comes up in the next verse, what's he doing? The spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tested. It's good enough for Jesus, good enough for us to see what's in our hearts. But the two things you've got to you've got to you've got to see is number one, does competition make you harder? Does it make you more intense? Does it make you angry? Does it make you feel like you're not good enough 
and speak to who you are as a person. Because if it does, you're going to be one of those <laughs> try hard to be good but find the hard and miss the good people. I got on, got on the freeway the other day going down I-4, got behind this lady, looked down, she had a bumper sticker that said, I have PMS and a handgun. Any questions? <laughs> no. <laughs> no questions. You know what? I just, I just know so many Christians that try so hard and have just that kind of attitude. You know? They're just not having fun with this deal. And you know why they're not having fun? For the same reason Cain couldn't have fun, he was still trying to win approval. When he had pr- approval to begin with. Those of you who are in Christ, listen to this. Now, if you're still in your sin, get out of it. Come to Jesus. But those of you who are in Jesus, you've got to realize this. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You've already won. You understand? The contest is over. From now on, it's just fun. From now on, it's just improvement. Once you're justified, the sanctification process ought to be a joy because you are already on the team. And so therefore, we ought to be going along and rejoicing with this thing. We sang this morning, glory, glory to the Lamb. In your sacrifice, we stand. There's your winner's circle. So you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to be good enough anymore. You've already been declared good by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, I just one more story. I, I used to have trouble with that whole concept. Even after I became a Christian, it gave me a little trouble because I was so competitive all my life and had to prove myself in so many ways. And I just figured that's how it was. And I certainly could not understand why. Or how, rather. I can understand why, but how God could look at my life and declare me righteous. Because I knew God wasn't blind. Well, when somebody explained to me that concept, God used an event in my, when I was young to really help me picture that. Let me tell it to you. Some of you have already heard me say this, but let me, let me say it again. When I was little, I grew up worshiping at a very formal, stoic, somber church. This was First Methodist Church. And we, it was kind of dark and, and somber and, and everybody was quiet and looked like this. And I remember going into church every Sunday and sitting third pew from the back on the left-hand side with my grandmother. That was our pew, see? Because that's, that's where we worshipped. And I remember, you know, looking at all the people, and it was so serious and somber, and, and it was kind of intimidating, and, and on a cloudy day, not even the stained glass windows would look pretty, and, and, and the preacher would get up, and he would use these words that were a mile and a half long. I couldn't understand what he was saying. I'd try, and I couldn't understand. It was absolutely excruciatingly boring for a little boy. And my, and my grandmother, who had a very kind heart, although a very somber personality, she'd slip me candy. Okay? <laughs> now, 
And it's usually those little butterscotches, you know? Now, there's an art to unwrapping candy in church. <laughs> there is. There's a timing to it. There's a timing to it because you can't make noise. So you watch the preacher. And when he gets loud, you kind of take a little bit of it, you know? <laughs> so he'll cover up the wrapping, see? Well, I'd work, I'd work that thing over, over a period of two, three minutes, you know? He'd get loud, loud enough that I could kind of do it in silence and then I'd pop it in my mouth. But that wasn't the best part. I loved butterscotch, but that wasn't the best part. The best part was taking that wrapper and doing this. You know what? That dark, somber place turned into a sunshiny place. It was so cool. Well, when when somebody explained to me, Hunter, God looks at you as if you were righteous. That's what I remember. And I imagine God saying, let me look through Jesus on the cross here. Let me, let me look for old Hunter. Where's old Hunter? Oh, there he is. Well, I don't know what all the complaints been about. He looks perfectly righteous to me. <laughs> We've already won. Relax. Enjoy the competition. Use it to better yourself. But not to rank. Not to put down. And not to prove yourself. Jesus has already done it. Pray with me. God, thank you for the way you see us. Thank you that we can come in Jesus Christ. God, there... There may be some people here today that have tried all their lives to be good enough and they just keep messing up and they're so tired of trying to be good and not being able to be good. God, let them today say, I give up. <laughs> I give up. I, I just want to love God and I want Him to love me and so I'm just going to rest in the forgiveness that was won for me on the cross of Calvary. And I'm not, going to tr I'm not going to quit trying to offer my best to God. But I'll know my best is good enough. And Father, for the rest of us who have prayed that prayer, and we know we're forgiven, and we know we're in the winner's circle, and we just keep running out of it, trying to compare ourselves to everybody else, and always coming up on the short end, get us back in the circle so that we can enjoy this, this life in which you are looking at us and not seen losers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.